Latter-day Contemplation is a podcast hosted by two Latter-day Saints who have found great value in experiencing God through walking a path of contemplation. The views expressed herein are our own. Hello and welcome to Latter-day Contemplation. We are your hosts, Christopher Hurtado and Riley Risto. Latter-day Contemplation started as an exploration of contemplative practices from many traditions to enhance our discipleship of Jesus Christ. We're by no means experts in the topics we discuss, but what we have is an openness to questions, a hunger to discover truth wherever we can find it, and a desire to share in the transformative life of inner peace. We love that you've joined us, and we hope that you find value in this community. Well, welcome again to another episode of Latter-day Contemplation. I'm Riley Risto, and I'm here with Christopher Hurtado, my co-host, and we've got a special guest, Morgan Aldis, who's with us. And before I go into an introduction of Morgan and uh, our topic today, I want to bring the the listener back to our last episode. For about the last five minutes, we discussed just very briefly this idea of alchemy in religion as part of the observance of religion. And a lot of people hear the topic of alchemy and, and they don't have a very deep understanding of it. Maybe they've heard of it, maybe they haven't. But if if you have heard of it, typically what people hear is that it's some sort of proto-chemistry. And so Christopher and I and Morgan are here to talk about alchemy in maybe a different way that you aren't familiar with and see if it does anything for you, if it helps you to process the, the many ways in which we worship and observe the the commandments, the ordinances, and whatnot of, of the church and of our individual spirituality. And for us, us three that is, that are hosting here, I know that it's opened our mind to the idea of individual spiritual transformation as a process or an experiment. So I would encourage you to go back to the last episode and maybe listen to that one and then pay special attention to the last five minutes. It'll give you kind of a cue for what we're going to talk about today. So without further ado, I want to introduce Morgan Aldis. Morgan, why don't you tell us just a little bit about yourself and then why you're interested in alchemy? Yeah, absolutely. So my name is Morgan. I'm a lifelong Latter-day Saint. I currently live in Salt Lake where I grew up. And I've been interested in in religion for a long time, especially religious symbolism. It's just always interested me. Uh, I did spend a semester at a Catholic college in Helena, Montana, studying theology. And so I do have a little bit of a formal theology background, though not a lot. And then I came to alchemy kind of, you know, as a kid, I was very interested in, in chemistry and science until I learned that it involves a lot of math. (laughs) And so looking back, I realized that I was more interested in the aesthetic of chemistry than chemistry itself. You know, I I just liked the idea of being a mad scientist in a, in a laboratory doing experiments. And, you know, I I didn't know anything about the scientific uh, method or anything, which now as I look back is, is interesting as far as my interest of alchemy, which, so I'll explain that in a minute. So if, if you're interested in symbolism and religion, uh, sooner or later in your study, you're going to come across the work of Carl Jung. Uh, he was a Swiss psychiatrist. He was, for a while, the favorite student of Sigmund Freud, but they did have a falling out, uh, mostly over the question of religion. Freud saw religion as 
as a useless defense mechanism uh, for the psyche that, you know, we, we couldn't grow and evolve psychologically until we did away with it. Carl Jung had a, a more positive view of religion. He saw it not only as something that is necessary, but is inescapable. It's, it's a deep part of our psyche. And religious symbolism is, is part of the language of the soul, was, was his belief. And so he wrote a lot on that. He also wrote a lot on alchemy. And so that's kind of how I came to alchemy, was through Carl Jung's work. And what he discovered, and, and we'll get more into this, is that what we look at as alchemy, we tend to see it as, like you mentioned, protochemistry at best, and you know charlatans trying to sell a skill they didn't possess of turning lead into gold before skipping town uh, at worst, which that actually did occur as well. But something that Carl Jung's work, something that he discovered through his work was that alchemy really was a, a rich spiritual tradition. And it's a, it's a symbolic language for, that carries these deep transformative religious truths. And so I have found that using some of the presuppositions of alchemy has better helped me to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ it's helped me to understand ancient scripture better because, you know, these, these presuppositions that the alchemists had, which, which I think we'll get into, are the same presuppositions that the authors of ancient scripture had in their view of how the world worked. And so kind of integrating this alchemical worldview into my, into my study and into my practice and devotion has really shed new light onto the meaning of scripture and the meaning of our ordinances and I, I would say it's, it's, it's a, a language that has been very profitable to learn on my spiritual journey. So I want, I, want to, I want to ask you a question, Morgan. If someone is interested in someone like Jung, since you brought him up, and his theories of psychology and religion, particularly his theory of archetypes, which I think he really popularized, if not brought up himself, would they, would they or could they also benefit or at least be interested in alchemy are they are they sort of joined together yes i think so carl jung as he developed his his psychotherapeutic practice based it a lot on the principles of alchemy yeah carl jung's work really is rooted in in alchemy since he started studying it moving forward he integrated it into his therapeutic practice he spent a lot of his writing on the subject of alchemy. Three of, of the volumes in his collected works are dedicated to alchemy. So yeah, if, if you study Jung, you're going to, to study alchemy as well. It was a very large part of his study, work, and theory. For a lot of people, their entry point, at least in the last five years anyway, into these ideas of archetypes and alchemy, and even an introduction into Carl Jung, has come through Jordan Peterson because he wrote a very accessible accessible and successful book called 12 Rules for Life. And within that book, he quotes Jung a lot, and he refers to Jung a lot, and this idea of archetypes. So some people may be coming to this, uh, this idea or these ideas through Jordan Peterson. And so just understand that Carl Jung is a, a much more in-depth expression of what Jordan Peterson was talking about. But if that's how you came here, great. Let's keep learning together. So alchemy, as you explained, sort of this proto-chemistry at best. That's a very you know charitable way to look at it. 
but at worst it's charlatans, right? So how do we bring people along to a more modern understanding of what alchemy is and how it can influence them today and how it might be part of their spiritual transformation? I think that a really good way to answer that question is uh, to paraphrase the scholar uh, Mircea Eliada. He was, uh, in the 20th century, he was a scholar of religion. He wrote a lot of great books about what religion is and exactly what we're doing when we engage in religious things. And he wrote a great book about alchemy called The Forge and the Crucible. It's the introduction that I recommend to everybody that's interested in alchemy. And he starts that book off by saying, you know, we, we traditionally view alchemy as proto-chemistry, that, that alchemy ended up complying to the scientific method and became chemistry. But Eliada challenges that view. He says, no, it's, it's not that the scientific method was introduced to alchemy and it became chemistry. It's that alchemy lost its spiritual meaning and then it became chemistry. And so the view that I want people to understand about alchemy is that it really was a spiritual practice. These, these chemical op- operations that the alchemists were doing in their laboratories were really a, an outward expression and an outward metaphor for an inward spiritual goal that they were working toward. Help us tie those inner and outer meanings together, Morgan. Okay, yeah. So I think that one of the best ways to explain the inner and outer work of alchemy, uh, especially for a Latter-day Saint audience, is to go to the Book of Mormon, to Ether's, Ether chapters 2 and 3. And this, of course, is, is the famous story where the brother of Jared creates these glass stones that he melts out of rock. And then he takes them up to the top of the mountain and asks the Lord to touch them, to make them glow. And then, of course, this leads to this powerful revelatory experience where he actually physically sees the finger of the Lord touch the stones. Uh, He gets a lesson about pre-mortal spirit and that the Savior was going to come to earth as a mortal and he, he has this, this powerful vision of all things. It's one of my favorite stories in the Book of Mormon. But I think that it really illustrates, and, and like I said earlier, having this alchemical worldview has really unlocked scripture for me. And this is one of those stories where that happens. Because if you, if you read the story, you find that while the brother of Jared is going through this physical work of transmuting matter, first from dull dead rock to something clear and then something that gives light it's really analogous to his spiritual maturation and becoming a prophet and a light unto his people that can lead them to the promised land and so with alchemy you know we say that they were trying to create the philosopher's stone or the elixir of life or turn lead into gold but that's really all a spiritual metaphor for their own spiritual perfection They were ideally trying to turn their fallen souls, which is comparable to lead, to godlike beings, which is the gold. That's interesting. Tell us a little bit more about the brother of Jared and his alchemical process. What do you see there? I see a lot of things. Like I said, I like to give an alchemical view. A lot of Latter-day Saint commentators have compared his experience to the temple ordinances. And I think that those two things go together very well. 
I mentioned Eliada's book, Forging the Crucible, earlier, and I'd just like to share a quote from that book. Uh, Eliada says, It is known that the essence of initiation into the mysteries, and the mysteries being these ancient religious ceremonies, consisted of participation in the passion, death, and resurrection of a god. We are ignorant of the modalities of this participation, but one can conjecture that the sufferings, death, and resurrection of the god already known to the neophyte as a myth or as authentic history, were communicated to him during initiations in an experimental manner. The meaning and finality of the mysteries were the transmutation of man. By experience of initiatory death and resurrection, the initiate changed his mode of being. He became immortal. All in all, the alchemist treats his matter as the god was treated in the mysteries. The mineral substances suffer, die, and are reborn to another mode of being. That is, they were transmuted. So there's a lot to unpack there. <laughs> but uh, So mystery is a word that its meaning has changed a lot in, in modern times. So when we think of a mystery, we think of like, oh, someone's been murdered, and we have to figure out who, de- who did it. It's a mystery. But that's not the way that that mystery was used in this religious context. So the word mystery comes from the Greek word mysterion, which means to close the mouth. Uh, and it, it referred to things that, to specifically to teachings and religious truths that could not be expressed. And that means a few things. On the one hand, there's this idea that they can only be understood by participation in these ceremonies, in these rites, in these ordinances. And the other is that these mystery ceremonies, these mystery rites, were usually guarded by an oath of secrecy, or what we might call a a covenant of secrecy. The Greeks, in their mystery religion, they took this very seriously, to the degree that we don't even really know what happened in the Greek mystery religions. So that's what Eliada means at the beginning of the quote, where he says we're, we're really quite ignorant <laughs> of the modalities of these, of these mysteries. Now, as Latter-day Saints, we claim... That's, be- that's because they took that myth, uh, that sorry, that oath on pain of death, right? Yes, yes, they did. And there's even, there's stories of someone who, like, in casual conversation, accidentally said too much about the mysteries, and so they stopped and made sure that everyone in the room had received them. And I know there's one account where they were on a ship, and what they ended up doing was there were like one or two slaves that hadn't received the mysteries, and they kind of overheard this conversation that shouldn't have happened. And so as soon as they got to land, they took them to the temple and got them initiated so that they could then be privy to what they had accidentally heard. So they took it very seriously, and I, like you mentioned, there's there's speculation that there was some kind of death oath that was made, although I'm not aware of any time that that was actually made good on. So the, the outer meaning of Mousterion, of the mystery, is that this is something that is guarded by an oath of secrecy of some kind. The inner meaning is that even if you wanted to, you couldn't actually speak of the essence of the mystery because it's not something that language is sufficient to convey. It has to come to you by revelation through participation in these dramas and in these ordinances. Parallels with the temple experience uh, are, are evident. How do we tie this back to 
the brother of Jared's experience and to alchemy in general. So Eliada says in that quote that I read that what we can kind of surmise from what little we know about these mysteries is that it was some kind of experimental, he says, or I would say experiential uh, retelling of a myth or story that the initiate already knew. And so there was probably some kind of drama element. And one of the most consistent, if you study world religion and comparative mythology, you find that the suffering, death, and resurrection of a god is a near universal motif. And so it's, it's believed that there was some kind of participation experientially in this story of the suffering, dying, and resurrecting god. And that's exactly what our ordinances are. I think that the, the ancient word mysterion or mystery can more or less be equated with our use of the word ordinance. The ordinances, every single one of them, at least what we would call the saving ordinances, is some kind of dramatic representation of the suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So what alchemy was, or at least what both Carl Jung and and Eliada conjecture, is that alchemy was yet another mode of performing this drama. Rather than having characters on a stage that represent these different gods and heroic characters performing the myth, instead you have these chemical operations that you can project these ideas onto. And so... A lot of alchemical processes have this beginning phase where you have to break the matter down into what they call the prima materia, uh, which, which translates as the first material, the first matter, or to put it in Latter-day Saint terms, what we might call matter unorganized. And then from there, they would continue their chemical operations on this matter until it went from unorganized to being a perfectly organized piece of matter, gold, or the philosopher's stone. For Latter-day Saints that have been through the temple ordinances, a lot of this should sound familiar. And I believe that's what the brother of Jared was doing. And so to kind of give the quick alchemical interpretation of what the brother of Jared was up to, he takes this material, this rock, that is from the earth that we're living on, which, as put it in Latter-day Saint terms, the telestial world. And before he can work with it, he has to break it down to its bare essence. So in the text, we're just told that he melted the stones out of a rock. Uh, But glass isn't made from rock. Glass is made from sand with a high silica content. So I imagine the brother of Jared going out, finding rocks that, that are of the right type, that have the right amount of silica, and then he grinds them down into sand, and then he heats up this sand in a furnace until it melts into glass, and he can purify it into what the text calls clear and white glass. And so, to put this into Latter-day Saint ordinance terms, he's taking this piece of the earth in its telestial state, and he's pulverizing it and, and disintegrating it In other words, he's taking it back into matter unorganized so that he can then move it forward 
to a state that has been cleansed by fire, what we might call the terrestrial state. And he's ultimately taking it into the presence of God to be transformed once more into a celestial state. And so as he's doing this, I imagine that he's reflecting on his own soul. He's going through this repentance process of moving his own soul from a telestial state, debasing himself through repentance, and then moving upward until he can rend the veil and enter the presence of God. Most of what you told us was what with the exoteric, the outer, what he's doing with the, with the melting and the, the purifying of the matter. But at the same time, as you, as you told us in the end, this is an internal process. This, this is the esoteric aspect of, of alchemy that, that we're hoping actually to be able to talk about in a way that is going to be applicable, right? Something that we can bring into practice, into our own spiritual practice. Yes, absolutely. And what I found useful for doing that is Carl Jung's psychological interpretation. Uh, it's, it's helpful to remember that psychology is the Greek, comes from Greek words meaning study of the soul. Psyche is Greek for soul. And then anytime you have a discipline that ends with ology, that's from the Greek for to study. And so psychology is the study of the soul. It, it really, when it's done correctly, is a spiritual discipline. I just wanted to, to add that plug. Uh, but I have this quote from Carl Jung where he talks about his psychotherapeutic process. He says, analytic psychology is defined as embracing both psychoanalysis and individual psychology. This approach includes four stages, confession, elucidation, education, and transformation. Each of these stages is subsequently analyzed. In the first stage, the secrets or inhibited emotions analogous to repressed sins that lead to neurosis must be confessed to enable the patient to regain his wholeness and his dependence on the doctor. Transference must be severed. Next, the elucidation of this transference must take place and the patient's fixation analyzed. The importance of drawing the patient out of himself in the process of education in order to attain normal adaptation is stressed. The fourth stage, transformation, is seen to affect both the patient and the doctor whose personalities have interacted throughout the treatment. Emphasis is placed on the doctor's need to engage in self-education, to understand that both he and the patient are in search of the cure that involves not just the body, but the entire psyche. So that's a lot of uh, psychobabble. But boiled down to its essence, he's essentially saying that successful psychotherapy, the aim of which is to experience psychological transformation into a being that's more adapted to reality comes down to these four phases, the confession, elucidation, education, and transformation. And so that's what the brother of Jared was doing in, in my estimation. So we have this experience where the brother of Jared, he's kind of just been hanging out on the beach for, what was it, three or four years? And He's not at the promised land yet, but he's at a land that is agreeable to him. He's gotten out of, of Babylon, uh, he's safe, and he's just kind of chilling on the beach here for a couple years, uh, which is fine, but 
it's really kind of an a subconscious way to be. He's not in he's not progressing in any in any real meaningful way. And so he has this experience where the Lord comes to him in a cloud and the Lord kind of chastises him for three whole hours for not he what what was said specifically in the text is that it was for not calling upon the name of the Lord. Uh, I think there was probably a little more to it than that. I don't think that that necessarily takes three hours, but I see that as his spiritual equivalent to grinding those stones down to sand. He's really having this experience where he's really um, being humbled. And that that first phase of Jungian psychology, confession, I think ties into that. He's brought face-to-face with his insufficiencies and with his own unconscious living and his own realization that he's called to something much higher. Then comes this this phase of elucidation. So in psycho- in psychotherapy after you've confessed these things and you've you've really brought out all of this subconscious material through the help of the therapist, what well, then naturally happens is you gain this new clarity on what's going on in your life as you as you can bring these subconscious elements into the light where they can be examined. And so in the brother of Jared's experience, I compare that to the clear and white glass that then comes out of this fiery debasement and and purification process. And the word elucidation just really means to be made clear. And that's exactly what happens with the materials that he's working with. And I imagine what happens in his own psyche, in his own soul, is he gains this new clarity in his purpose as the leader of his people and as a disciple of Jesus Christ, even though this is in Old Testament times. Uh, Next is education, where the therapist kind of helps the person to analyze all of this and to start to make changes and to, to learn better ways of being. And that's in the brother of Jared's work is comparable to climbing the mountain and, and heading up toward the presence of God. And then finally there's this transformation where the stones are touched and it's, it's really cool. There's this idea in alchemy that it's all about the union of opposites. And so there's, there's nothing more opposite than stone and light And at this moment where the Lord touches these stones with his finger, we have this union of opposites, light coming from stone. But we also have the opposites of God and man, of mortal and immortal, coming face to face and interacting. And so the brother of Jared is also experiencing this inner transformative work that is symbolized by this outward experience. And I think ordinances work the same way. I think that's a good entree into where we really want this discussion to go, is how can a member of the the church who's familiar with the ordinances and, and various commandments of the church implement a sort of spiritual alchemy today? That's a, a study that I have found very fruitful in my own spirituality is is looking at my my practice of becoming a disciple of Christ through this alchemical lens. And 
So as, as I mentioned, we have these ordinances that I think serve the same purpose for us that working with the stones served for the brother of Jared. And so, you know, the, the quintessential Christian ordinance or ritual is baptism. And so baptism is this, this physical thing that we do. We go to someone with authority who says this prayer and then immerses us completely in water and then pulls us back up out of the water. And this is supposed to be a transformative experience. Uh, anyone who has served a mission sadly knows that that's not always the case. Uh, a lot of times when someone we've been teaching gets baptized, uh, it doesn't seem to work <laughs> because <laughs> they, they don't actually make the change that, that you would hope that they would make. And I think that that kind of reveals the secret to it is that baptism itself, the physical act, isn't really transformational. But it's sufficient, right? Exactly. We, we talked about this in our last episode, the difference between the checklist gospel, uh, the, the exoteric um, application of only the, the, the application of only the exoteric practice without the inner transformation. And, and how that's different from bringing the two together. While baptism is certainly necessary, it isn't sufficient. But I will say, having, yes. having gone through this process as an adult, when you commit to the physical act or the exoteric act of baptism, it certainly influences the esoteric inner, um, inner work. So that yeah, the, they go together. Tell us about your experience. Yeah, probably. well, I mean, like for me, by committing to baptism, I knew that I was going to be doing this very outward expression in front of other people, not just the witnesses which are there on the sides of the baptismal font, not just the bishop, not just the missionaries, but all my friends who had been aware that I was taking the discussions, my family, uh, whom. I had told shortly before the ordinance that I was going to do this and they all showed up and it was a very public expression. And so it set in motion a series of steps that was brought about by an outward physical commitment represented or symbolized by the baptism, by the exoteric ordinance. And so this is where I think, as Morgan brings out, I, that the ordinances are inherently connected with the transformation, the inner spiritual transformation. I think they go hand in hand together. When, when Morgan was talking about um, organizing the base matter, the prima materia, and bringing it to a higher state, I couldn't help but think of the temple drama where we're taught that God sent Jesus down and said, here's matter unorganized, go ye therefore and organize it into a world like into the others we have heretofore formed. And I think to myself, that's that's the ultimate alchemical experiment is the creation or the cosmog the cosmogony and that cosmogony along with the death and rebirth of the god figure which is symbolized when we go into the baptismal waters but the cosmogony is another very important alchemical expression of transformation and another thing that we act out repetitively throughout our religious life if we're participating in the rituals and ordinances of, of our religion. 
So I think alchemy and um, uh, and the archetypes that Jung talked about go go hand in hand as well. Yeah, Morgan, how do you see the relationship between going down into the waters of baptism and the alchemical process of breaking matter down to prima materia? Yeah, I you know I think that that Riley hinted at this very well is if you go back to the creation story which is obviously very important because as far as i know that is the story that is most repeated in scripture we get it in genesis actually two different versions at the beginning of genesis Uh, we get it again in the book of moses we get it again in the temple drama we get endless commentary on it um you know there's that old that old joke that philosophy is all just footnotes to Plato. Uh, it seems that a lot of scripture is just footnotes and commentary on the creation. And so that's, I think, a very important story that's supposed to have personal application for us. And so at the beginning of the creation, before the, the world was really organized into something, it was just water. And then the, the first creative act was when God separated the dry land from the water. And I think that's that's what we do with baptism is like Riley mentioned, it's the cosmogony. The the initial act of creation is being made new and present and we are being made participants in it when we're baptized. And so when we go and we are we are immersed in the water, I think that that is supposed to represent to us as if we are going back into the the pre-cosmogonic chaos that we are our old sinful natural man self is symbolically being dissolved into the water and then just as that act of creation was drawing new dry land out of the water in in the genesis story we as a new person is being then reconstituted and drawn out of the water and then we of course the apostle paul reminds us that when we are baptized we are baptized into the death burial and resurrection of jesus and so we have this participation when we're when we're baptized we are participating both in the creation story uh the the fall because it's very representative of our sinful nature going down into the water and then the atonement as we are symbolically killed buried and then resurrected as jesus was and of course there's also symbolism of birth as well of being born again as a new creature the the ordinances are just so rich with symbolism that you know if we don't take time and i know the the whole theme of this podcast is is contemplation if we don't take the time to really contemplate what is being symbolized by these ordinances, I think we miss it. I think it's it's up to us then, after we've gone through the ordinance, to figure out what God is trying to tell us to do. Right. Can we walk through the covenant path at this point? We started with baptism. Can we go down that path and, and look at it alchemically? I, I think so, absolutely. On the covenant path, of course, we're we're baptized, and then after that, we we then receive the gift.
Holy Ghost by the laying on of hands, which in scriptural terms is called the baptism of fire and of the Holy Ghost. And so we're kind of going through the elements here, which is, is very alchemical. We What are those are elements, ba- Morgan? What are the alchemical yes. elements? So the, the classical elements that, that the alchemists had in mind were earth, air, fire, and water. And so... And, in, and man is made from the dust of the earth. That's right. So we're the earth. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and we, we emerge from the matrix of the womb out of baptism. We're reborn out of this cauldron of water of chaos into mm-hmm. a new world. And we're reborn into this world. And the first thing we do when we emerge from the water or the, or the womb, for that matter, if we're talking symbolically, is mm-hmm. we take a big old breath of air. Exactly. And we realize we're in the lone and dreary world and we start crying right away. <laughs> That's right. And but then the next thing is what? Then the next thing is is the baptism of fire, which is that, you know, that final purification into something new. And so, you know, like you mentioned, we're we're made of the dust of the earth. We are immersed and reconstituted in water. And then we we take that breath or also to to look at Acts chapter 2, when the disciples were gathered and were waiting to receive the Holy Ghost so that they could begin their ministry, they, as they are gathered on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Ghost enters the room as a rushing of wind. Wind, yeah. And then after the wind comes the tongues of fire that reside over each of their heads to indicate that they have received the Holy Ghost. And so you have this, the combination of elements, uh, or, or essences, as it was sometimes called in alchemy. And another alchemical term, I actually used this word earlier, and I, I thought about pausing to point this out. The term quintessential yeah. is actually alchemical in origin, because we have the four elements, and the goal of alchemy was to create the fifth element, or the quint essence, uh, which was ether, or or this spiritual matter. And so, when by combining and, and working with the earthly elements, the four elements, the goal was to also be able to manipulate and use spirit, which they considered to be a fifth element. Which is interesting because as Latter Day Saints, we claim that that spirit is a form of matter. And that's actually something that the alchemists would have agreed with. And that by manipulating physical matter, they were also able to manipulate spiritual matter. And so this combination of the four elements, earth, water, air, and fire, then brings about this fifth element of spirit. And that's very heavily symbolized in our ordinances. Okay, so it seems like we've gone through the whole of it now, but we really haven't uh, we haven't walked the covenant path all the way to the end, which, by the way, ends in the mystery of conjunction, right? And the pair of opposites of the marriage of the, the the sacred marriage of the man and the woman. This is exciting. It is, <laughs> and you know, so after baptism and and confirmation, uh, then the the weekly sacrament takes on meaning. I was thinking about this the other day. Um, it's kind of interesting the way we as Latter-day Saints treat the sacrament uh, because, like I mentioned, I've 
part of my education was was in a Catholic college, and so I attended mass and everything very frequently, which I really enjoyed. Um, but for them, the sacrament or the Eucharist, as they call it, is very much tied in with membership in the Roman Catholic Church. And if you are not in communion with the Roman Catholic Church, you are asked not to participate in the Eucharist by by taking the bread and wine. As Latter-day Saints, we don't really do that. We're like, well, you know, if you're not baptized, then it's just bread and water to you, but you're welcome to take it to remember Jesus, <laughs> But uh, which I, I think is interesting. But the sacrament, I think, has some really interesting alchemical ideas behind it. One of the dictums that the alchemists used was the Latin phrase salve et coagula, which means separate and combine. And so a lot of their laboratory operations involved breaking down materials, separating them into their parts, purifying those parts, and then bringing them back together. Uh, With plant alchemy, for example, from the same plant, you would burn it, dissolve the ashes, and then strain the water, and then let it evaporate. And what was left was the salt uh, that was inside the plant. And then you would take some more of it, and you would distill the essential oil out of it. There's that word essence again, which is is very alchemical. Well, earlier, Martin, you even mentioned the phrase, when we were talking about the brother of Jared, you said, boil this down to its essence. I don't even think you realized it. It was totally sub, you know, unconscious. But when you said boil this down to its essence, that's about the most purely alchemical phrase you could possibly use. Yeah, now I'm thinking, ye are the salt of the earth. Mm, Yes. And, And so the alchemists, they saw the salt that they extracted from these plants as being the purified body of the plant. And then the essential oils that they would extract from it represented kind of the soul or the psyche or the intelligence of the plant and then they would also ferment the plant and then distill the alcohol uh, which they would call the spirit of the plant and today we still call alcohol spirit see this alchemical language is very uh, interwoven into our experience it's it's crazy when once you learn about alchemy just how much of its presuppositions and ideas are still with us, at least kind of fossilized in our language. But and yet, uh, the, and yet the reference of these symbols are, are lost to us for the most part. Yes, exactly. And as a kid, I always thought it was funny that like alcohol was also called spirits because you know, especially as a kid where you're very much a black and white thinker, good and bad, and you're like, spirit is good, but alcohol is bad. So why do they call alcohol? <laughs> That's very confusing as a kid. Um, making these plant elixirs alchemically you are separating the plant into its body intelligence and spirit uh, or into its salt oil and alcohol and then you recombine those those perfected and purified elements back into one which is then the elixir that is supposed to have the medicinal value that, that, that is attributed to that plant. And so that's the idea of salve et coagula, separate and then recombine. And, and, you're, and you're relating this to the sacrament. I am, yeah. And so one thing that I, I think is so interesting 
is the way that that we do the sacrament as Latter-day Saints is we have, as we're singing the sacrament hymn, the priests are breaking up bread. And, you know, as, as I was going up through the offices of the Aaronic Priesthood, as a teacher, we would prepare the sacrament. So we would lay out the bread, we would fill the cups with water, and all of that. And in my ward, they were very careful to tell us, as teachers, not to tear the bread. That we were supposed to place the bread in, in whole pieces on the tray. Unbroken. Even if you had, unbroken even if you had to kind of situate it awkwardly because it didn't quite fit on the tray. And the reason we were told this is because breaking the bread was part of the ordinance, and it was the part that the priests did. We, and this is, this is very legalistic, but you know we didn't have authority as teachers to break the bread. And so because of that experience, I, and I've, I've talked to friends and stuff, and in their words, it wasn't uh, emphasized that much. But in my ward, it was. And so in my mind, the, the breaking of the bread has very much been an important part of the ordinance itself. And, you know, we're, we're singing hymns, bruised, broken, torn for us as the priest is doing this. And this is obviously an allusion to the suffering that Jesus went through, because we're told that the, the bread is to remind us of his body, uh, which our Catholic friends uh say is not taking Jesus literally enough. Uh, they, they see it as a, the literal body of Jesus, which I think has some powerful, some powerful meaning, but it's, it's not found in our tradition. Well, there's a, there's a transformation that, that happens there and a a mystery, right? It is a mystery, uh, that is quite alchemical also in appearance. Yes. tradition. And, and that's one thing that is interesting about the mass is, in the things that the priest has to recite to bring about this transformation, he uses the word mystery several times in the Catholic blessing on the bread or the, the wafer. Um, he will reference these mysteries. And then just before the communion is performed, he will raise out his hands and, and say the mystery of faith. And so the, the Catholic church still has this wording of mystery and it actually used to be a literal mystery. My Catholic friends have, have told me that, uh, more anciently the Eucharist was done in secret and the mass is actually divided into two parts. First is the liturgy of the word, which is where Psalms are sung, uh, parts of the gospels are read. And the priest gives the homily, which is the sermon on that day's reading. And so the liturgy of the word also used to be called the liturgy of the catechumens. And Riley, you are, I know you're a former Catholic, so you can (laughs) correct me (laughs) on any of this. Um, But it was called the liturgy of the catechumens, which in Latter-day Saint terms, we would call the meeting of the investigators. It's the part that non-Catholics are invited to participate in and to be educated by. And then, anciently, all non-baptized Catholics were then asked to leave so that the, the mystery could be performed, which 
was the Eucharist itself. And in some of the more traditional forms of the Mass, there is still a part where the deacon will shout, the doors, the doors. And that's kind of this remnant from back when they used to close and lock the doors to perform the mystery, which is interesting. In, in a lot of Latter-day Saint wards, we do the same thing. Uh, and I, I would love to know the history of that, but I don't. Uh, but oftentimes, you'll be in a ward where a priesthood holder will close the door and stand guard as the sacrament is being performed, which is really fascinating to me. But anyway, that's so right. to, get back, to get back to the bread, it's being dismembered right in in remembrance of the suffering of of jesus and the the tortures that were laid upon his body well we could say it's being dismembered so that we then can remember exactly what has and been that's, dismembered and that's what i think is so fascinating is immediately after this dismembering the priest then kneels down and offers this prayer where he says that they, meaning us, the congregation that are participating in this mystery, will always remember him. That, and so, when you taught me that last week when we were talking, I was like, whoa. And I know there's <laughs> other people that have heard that, I'm sure, and I'm way behind the curve on this. But for me, every time now I hear the word remember, it is in a completely different context for me. It, I mean, whether I'm sitting in sacrament or or I'm just talking to a friend who says, remember that time? It doesn't matter now. Every time I hear the word remember, <laughs> it brings to mind the the Savior and the resurrection. And it, it, it's amazing to me, that small insight. So I want to just, I almost want you to repeat it, you know. Solve it, coagula. It, that's exactly it. You're breaking it down to its essential, its quint, its quint essence, right? You're breaking it down and then you're reforming it. So you're exactly. dismembering and you're remembering. You're bringing it back together. You're coagulating it again. Exactly. And that that use of remember, because I was the same way, you know, like as a kid, you know, my parents were like, okay, be reverent. It's time for the sacrament. We're going to remember Jesus. And, you know, I, I just thought that that was purely <laughs> like a psychological experience. You know, you are just, you are conjuring up mental images of Jesus is what always remember him meant to me for most of my life. Um, I can't claim credit for this idea of remembering as, because that's really what, what I think is it, we're being told to do is, is the emblem of Jesus is dismembered and then distributed into the congregation. And then we are told we are blessed in the prayer that we'll be able to remember him which I think symbolically, so that's, you know, there's the Salwe breaking up the bread and then coagula recombining it. And I think that's an invitation for us to join with our brothers and sisters and to have this Zion mentality and to create the body of Christ in ourselves. Cause that's, that's another term for the church, right? Is the body of it Christ. is. Yeah, as a matter of fact, we can see this as an instance of, of the Lord entering the temple too, because we're told in the new Testament that, that the body is the temple of the Lord, but that that body that's being referred to is misunderstood as being our individual bodies, whereas the the plural is used in the Greek such that it is the, the congregation of saints that is the body, that is the temple of the Lord. Mm, yes, and 
you know, for, for full disclosure, I can't take credit for this insight. I originally learned about this, this view of the word remember. I think it was from a blog post that Blake Osler wrote. Uh, so if, if you're not familiar with Blake Osler, he's a Latter-day Saint theologian, uh, very insightful. And so to remember Christ is to see ourselves as parts of the bodies of body of Christ and to come together. And so that, that idea I learned from Blake Osler, and then later as I was studying alchemy, I realized how perfectly it fits that dictum of Solway et coagula, divide and bring back together. And I think that that's exactly what we're doing, or supposed to be doing, <laughs> when we participate in the sacrament. And if we, if we were thoughtful about it and sought to really apply the lesson of what we're doing, because that's the thing about the ordinances, is we can be as lazy as we want with them. We can go to church, we can take the sacrament, and we can go home again. And, and we can do it thoughtlessly. Yeah, exactly. I'm reminded of a scripture that says that if we... If our prayers are thoughtless, then not only do they not count, it's, it doesn't say that they don't count, it says that they're counted as evil. Mm. Very interesting. The, the, the point I'm trying to make is that they count against us, right? That it's not just that it doesn't help us in any way, it's that it actually hinders us. That's what mm. I would say to that. I think that's the important point to take away, at least. Yeah, I think so, too. I like that Absolutely. as well, because it can get in your mind that you're actually doing what you're supposed to, which could prevent you from being humble enough to do the right way. Or, you know, to actually to, do it. Yeah. To actually do it the right way. Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of times strict, obedient observance of commandments without any thought for why we're doing it can be a hindrance. If we're not really sitting down and thinking about, why am I doing this? What's the purpose behind it? And which is why I really love... The temple and the way that symbolism is plays out in the temple because it it's explained to you what these things mean and the covenants associated with them so that when you do them it becomes a marker or a token for some future remembrance and yet it's just as easy to ignore the deeper sure. meanings that are explained in the temple as it is the meanings that maybe even weren't explained about the ordinances that we're explaining. So walk through the next part um, up with initiatory, for instance, as another ordinance along the covenant path. Yeah, yeah, and I, you know, when when I get to temple ordinances, I I like to kind of speak in general terms, uh, just out of respect for the mysteries that I've participated in. Uh, but if you if you've been through the initiatory. That's all about a remembering of the body and the spirit. And it's, it's kind of this putting together of parts is, is a good way of looking at the initiatory. And let's not forget that before the initiatory, there is a baptism. Our baptism has already taken place when we're going to the temple for ourselves. But for those who we do, for whom we do vicarious work, before that remembering, there is that descent into the waters of baptism, mm -hmm. into chaos, yeah. mm -hmm. and yes, that, and that ascent. Well, and heck, if you following. if you really want to get alchemical with it, the baptismal font in a temple is a cauldron. It's filled with water. There's there's officiants, and they're they're experimenting essentially. They're they're calling upon forces outside of that 
that venue to bless and sanctify that ordinance that's happening right there. Um, it's very experimental. And if you, if you want to literalize alchemy into some sort of chemistry, well, that's one way to look at it as an experiment that uh, is being conducted right in front of the officiators. Or the yes, witnesses. absolutely. Yeah. I, I love that idea of the font as as a cauldron or a crucible of you know this this place for experiment and for transformation to occur. The baptismal font is a lot of things. It's a grave. It's a womb of rebirth. It's what one symbolic thing is. We all at least try to always have baptismal fonts be at or underground level mm-hmm. in our temples the fonts are are always in the basement always in the lowest level yeah and i think that that's heavily symbolic because before you can ascend you have to descend like i was talking about with the brother jared experience he took pieces of terrestrial earth and took them to outer darkness or to matter unorganized first before he took them to a, a terrestrial state, which I think is really interesting. And I think we we do the same thing. In Greek, there's these terms, and I'm sure I'm mispronouncing them, but there's catabasis, which is the descent, and then anabasis, which is the ascent. And mythologically, the character always goes through a descent before going through the ascent. I think that there's some powerful meaning to that. So uh, continuing along you that. that. You see that in, in world mythology. You see it in, in Egyptian mythology and Isis and, and uh, Osiris. You see it in the descent of Inanna. It's in the Odyssey and the Aeneid. It's all over the place. There, there's always the, the descent before the ascent. And we, we see it in the Sermon on the Mount, too. The, the first beatitude that Jesus utters is... Blessed are the poor in spirit. So there's this idea that before you can even start the journey, you have to become poor in spirit. You have to debase yourself and humble yourself to to get to the bottom rung of the ladder that takes you up into the presence of God. And I think that, that there's... Well, so, so to go back to, to alchemy, one of the presuppositions... That the alchemists had that really gave context to their work and to their philosophy is this idea that the earth itself is a mother, that metals and gemstones and, and precious things that come out of the earth, they viewed them almost as embryos in the womb of the earth. Right. And the the ancients actually believed that lead would eventually ripen into gold anyway, and that the alchemist was simply, through his his chemical operations, was speeding up time and taking the place of time. And it's, it's pretty easy to see why they believed this. Uh, if you find a lead deposit out in the world, there's almost always a little bit of silver in lead deposits. And when you find silver deposits, there's almost always a little bit of gold in the deposit. And so it's easy to see in this this pre-scientific imagination, and I don't say that in a derogatory way either. In this pre-scientific imagination, it, it makes perfect sense. Well, of course there's a little bit of silver in the lead. The lead's turning into silver. 
And of course, there's a little bit of gold in the silver. The silver's turning into gold. And the same thing happens when you find a deposit of gemstones. If, if you find a deposit of rubies, for example, some of them will be in the deep red, the deep blood red color that we look for in quality gemstones. But they won't all be that way. Some will be lighter shades, some will be a pink, and some will even be clear. And so when an ancient person would see that, they would see these little embryos developing and that some were more ripe than others, like fruit on a tree. And once you understand that, I think that the, the alchemical ideas start to make more sense. And yeah. you can start to see why there's this idea of, of why the alchemist would believe that they could turn lead into gold. And it's the idea that it, it would anyway. And I think you see that in the brother of Jared's story as well. He takes this terrestrial earth that, you know, according to our theology and according to our cosmology is eventually going to be celestialized. Well, the brother of Jared is just taking a few pieces of it and doing an early run <laughs> of celestialization and that this reflects his own development. Uh, what is, is it? Joseph Fielding Smith that's famous for saying we're gods in embryo. Yeah. And so if I think, if that's right. it, I think it was him. Uh, one of one of the earlier presidents of the church said that. So, you know, if, if lead is gold in embryo and it simply needs to be refined and we are gods in embryo and we simply need to be refined, we can really see how alchemy emerged as this way of doing the mysteries or the ordinances. There's a very strong parallel between the ways that metals were believed to behave and the ultimate destiny of the soul of man. Morgan, you used the term imagination, which uh, there's a, a more recent Jungian psychologist, well, not as recent as Jordan Peterson, recently deceased, actually, James Hillman, uh, made it a point to, to, to really bring out the fact that we're lacking in imagination, that mm -hmm. somehow the scientific revolution meant that we, in some sense, lost our imagination. We, it reminds me of that quote you gave earlier from Eliada on, on what alchemy is. And so when you, when you said that, I thought, yeah, if we, it doesn't matter if, if lead actually becomes gold. And by the way, the turning one, one element into another is not an impossibility. It actually happens every day in nuclear reactors where we actually have created one. Uh, namely plutonium, uh, out of uh, a new element, out of other elements. But it doesn't matter if lead would eventually become gold. The point is that, that the lead symbolizes that of lesser worth and the gold that of greater worth, and that there's a transformation that can happen spiritually that brings us from, from that lower level to that higher level. And that begins with baptism and walking along the covenant path. And we left off, by the way, at the initiation in the temple rites mm -hmm. takes us all the way through the crowning ordinance of the mystery of conjunction in the sacred marriage, that, that exactly. union of opposites of man and woman. Exactly. And, you know, I, I don't think I'm revealing too much when I point out that the endowment, which is the next phase after the initiatory, is performed with man and woman separated. 
we, we men and women sit on opposite sides of the room. And so as part of this transformation, we have the Solway, the separation, and then we, in the crowning ordinance of sealing, which you've just said, we have this union of opposites, of male and female coming together, which is supposed to be a transformative experience. I'm single, and so I <laughs> am still awaiting <laughs> that that part of the magnum opus. But I, you know, in talking to loved ones that I know that are married, they they will tell you how much life changes, how much is transformed in a marriage. And that's really what it's all about. Carl Jung actually has a quote kind of relating psychology to alchemy. And I'll, I'll paraphrase it. He says that humans are like, when they meet, it's like a chemical reaction. That if there is any reaction at all, both entities are transformed. Which is, you know, to go back to your high school chemistry class, that's exactly what happens. If a chemical reacts at all, that means it's changing into something else. And that change, those changes occur over uh, a lifetime or over an eternity, right? Because we're talking about eternal marriage. And, and this is why we say now in the end of the covenant path, in a sense, there is no end. In a sense, there is no end. Well, we say endure to the end, but then we say there is no end. <laughs> That's right. And so, and so on we go through this process of spiritual transformation. What a great conversation. Let's keep it going. Yeah, I <laughs> I'm just, I'm enjoying it just listening on the sidelines. It's awesome. <laughs> so one of the things that this podcast is about is reaching out for new ways to commune with God, right? So in the past episodes, we've talked about different prayer modalities. We've talked about different ways to experiment with contemplation. And I think that experimenting with the word straight out of Alma 32 or prove me here with, and some of these phrases that you read throughout scriptures are an invitation to uh, spiritual alchemy. And so I wanted to get your thoughts on ways that you might experiment with the word. And the word could be the symbolic word or the literal word either way. But what are some ways that we might practice alchemy today? that's a great question and I kind of lament living in a scientific era because I think I would really enjoy the laboratory work element of alchemy kind of the the outer expression uh, but I don't think it's it's absolutely necessary as kind of an interesting side note here in Salt Lake there actually used to be an alchemical college where you could go and do these experiments and these chemical operations that were developed by alchemists during the Renaissance, which I think is pretty cool. Uh, unfortunately, it's it's long defunct. The The man who ran it uh, has passed away. But uh, but yeah, even though we we don't really live in an era where we we view chemical processes the same way, we, we now view them very differently, I think that, that the insights that alchemy gives us are still very applicable to our spiritual development. In, in one method, as, I, as we've been talking about this whole time, is the ordinances become that outer work. And that's actually something that Carl Jung speculated, was that as religion kind of lost its mystery 
Uh, and I'm, I'm not sure Carl Jung specifically talks about the Protestant Reformation, but I will. Uh, a lot of the Protestant Reformation involved demystifying the world mm-hmm. and demystifying spirituality. I actually, as, as Latter-day Saints, we commonly posit that the Reformation was part of the Restoration. I actually kind of bristle at that. I think it actually took us further away from from a lot of true principles. But it's I interesting. Think... I think it had to it, it had to happen in order for the restoration to take place, but then it also was a reason why the restoration had to take place. Right. I agree, Morgan, and I think, you know, Catholicism gets a, a bad rap in the Mormon psyche, and I hope that we've done at least a, a small part of uh, repairing that. We have we actually have a lot more in common theologically, and you may know this from your own studies, Morgan, mm-hmm. with, with Catholics than we do with Protestants. Yes, and I I really did not come to... I, I always like to point out that studying Catholicism helped me to be a true Mormon. <laughs> I think that there's, there's just such a rich tradition in Catholicism that can really inform our own our own faith. And if you want to join the sister faith... I say this as a former Lutheran, which isn't Catholic, but is pretty darn Catholic, at least. Yeah, it's pretty Catholic. And I think Riley can back us up on this, too. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. That's pretty Catholic. I was also going to point out out our relationship uh, in terms of praxis with the Orthodox faith and many of our doctrines that we share. I mean, something like theosis is is a commonly held belief in Orthodox faith. And and so I, I, I think... Bridging that gap or reducing the distance between the faiths helps us to find new ways of faith expression that don't necessarily stamp out what we what is peculiar to us and what we believe, but just enhances what what our experience can be. So the more we learn about you know orthodoxy, um, Christian orthodoxy, Roman Catholicism, and even traditions outside of the Christian faith, the, the more it enhances our own faith. And that's an important part of what we're we're here to talk about. And that's some well, of the experimentation but, yeah. I, I want to kind of get into because I know for me, my life has been enhanced by practicing meditation and various modalities of meditation, not even necessarily religious meditation, even though I do that as well. But to me, those are experiments. Um, I'm experimenting with different ways of communing with God through the Word. And sometimes the Word is just singular. It's just a word. And I'll, I'll focus in on that word and experiment upon that word, that one word, and see where that one word takes me. I think that's the essence of, of Lectio Divina as well, which both of you are familiar with and we've talked about before, is that you, you take a word or a series of words and, and you experiment upon them and let, let the Spirit decide where that's going to take you rather than predetermining what those things mean based on some contextual relationship with history or whatever else. And so I, I, I'm very curious about those types of experiments and um, tests and trials and, and you know proving ourselves through those experiments to see what comes of that experiment, what's the outcome of that. And I think that's, for me, that's modern-day alchemy, is yes. blending the, the physical practice with the spiritual desire. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, you, you just used a whole bunch of alchemical terms again. You know, these ideas of, of proving, that's a metallurgical term. You, you use fire and other things to prove the purity of metals. 
and we you know we in our in our civil discourse we talk about trials and so a trial is where we turn up the heat on somebody to find out what they're made of and to, to find out if they're a criminal or not so and trial that's by fire much, exactly those are metallurgical terms so to to kind of finish the thought that i i started when talking about the protestant reformation i don't think it's an accident that alchemy in europe because alchemy continued from late antiquity through the medieval period and into the renaissance but it wasn't until the renaissance that it really flowered and there's a lot of reasons for that one is that a lot of the the alchemical texts from late antiquity were being translated for the first time into european vernacular languages like italian french and english but also this is kind of my speculation is that alchemy got popular again in response to the demystification that was occurring with the protestant reformation and that as as people's church experience became less and less centered on these rituals and ordinances that the psyche then turned to this other symbolic language of alchemy to express the same things. That's interesting. Well, and I think that's that's I'm just coming up with on the spot to kind of carry that history forward a little bit, even though the Protestant Reformation, you know, brought into vogue a way of approaching religion that was demystified a lot of people bristled against that. If, and we, we tend to look at America and we say, oh, it's a pretty religious nation, God-fearing, very religious, right? You look at 20th century America, mid-century, maybe 70-80% of Americans affiliated with one religion or another. That's gone down, obviously. But what people don't know is that in the, or you know, a lot of people don't anyway, is that in the you know, 18th century, America was not religious at all in terms of official affiliation. I think only 10% of uh, Americans had any religious affiliation in, in the 18th century. And, and a lot of their spirituality and their religious type practice or their ritual practice had more to do with these kind of alchemical things than they did some kind of doctrine or um, you know catechism or anything like that. There was a lot of alchemical type practices going on especially during the time that Joseph Smith had his visions and a lot of that was probably as a result of that environment that he grew up in as you know I'm in the midst of reading early Mormonism and the magic worldview with uh, by D Michael Quinn and it's a comprehensive history of everything that was going on in Joseph Smith's time and how that developed into really the church and doctrine that we have today and it's it's very interesting and this is this is attested even by richard lyman bushman in his biography of joseph smith joseph smith roughstone rolling that magical worldview was very much a part of the ferment out of which uh, the prophet joseph smith arose and was very much a part of his own experience yes and it was a part and it was it it helped him uh, gain converts you know from among those people that shared that experience Yes, absolutely, and and alchemy as such, unfortunately for me, because it's it's something I'm interested in. Um, I found from my studies, including um, from D. Michael D. Michael Quinn's book, 
alchemy as such uh, did not play a huge role in in Joseph Smith's life. Obviously, a lot of the presuppositions that go into what Quinn calls the magic worldview are alchemical in nature. But interestingly, I, I have found that uh, William Clayton, who was Joseph Smith's secretary, and I think most Latter-day Saints' direct connection to him is he wrote the beloved hymn, Come, Come, Ye Saints. He actually, in Utah, established a chapter of this secret society called the British Metallurgical Association that was a an alchemical initiation uh, society. So like how the Freemasons use architecture and stoneworking or masonry as a metaphor for building character, uh, the British Metallurgical Society was a similar brotherhood that used the imagery and metaphors of alchemy uh, to help men to, to build up better characters. And unfortunately, there's not a lot of information about that society. I've been looking. If any of your listeners have any info on that, I would love for them to get a hold of me. Alchemy did play some role in the early church, and it, it was part of the ideas in the general psyche, as you mentioned. Well, and I, I would the say that there's, there's general alchemy and there's specific alchemy or traditional alchemy. I think general alchemy is essentially using tools, implements, elements to accomplish something interior. And, and so yes. when, I, when I'm talking about kind of general alchemical processes that were going on during Joseph Smith's time, I mean, you think about his, his seer stones, for instance, you know, and, and uh, what they called peeping in a hat. I don't see those things as, as anything that should be considered anti-Mormon in the least. These were tools that he utilized to facilitate the process of revelation. And if, if there's a better expression for what alchemy was supposed to be than that in modern times, I'm not sure what it was or what it is. So the fact that he used these um, tools or substances or elements in order to accomplish spiritual ends is, is extremely alchemical in my mind. Now, it got to the point where, you know, he started off where he, he had needed to have the scriptures in front of him, the plates in front of him to translate. And then, it, and then it went to the point where, you know, if they were in the same room, it was good enough. And then it went to the point where he was looking through a hat at a stone and then Eventually, he needed none of that because the spiritual transformation inside had taken place to the point where he then had that gift of revelation at a, at a different level. It was a progression through steps, utilizing alchemical processes that allowed him to become kind of that full-bore prophet that he was. Yes, absolutely. And one other little alchemical note that I think is really interesting, a friend of mine pointed this out to me, is even the stories of the restoration itself are alchemical. The one that, that comes to my mind is the gold plates. So in the, in the story of the gold plates, we originally have Nephi and his brothers going to retrieve the law of Moses so that their people would have it when in the promised land. And the law of Moses is written on brass plates. But then the Nephites through starting with Lehi and Nephi's visions receive the higher law. And, and Nephi even mentions this. He says, you know, once we received this revelation of Jesus Christ, 
the law of Moses just kind of became something we did, but we were trying to live the higher law. And the higher law is transcribed on plates of gold. And so we have baked into the story and narrative of the Book of Mormon itself is the old law of brass being transmuted into the higher law of gold, which is then placed into a tomb for 1400 years before it's resurrected and breathes life into the restoration. And so these, these ideas of transmutation and of metals and of lower orders transforming into higher orders, it's very much built into the ancient psyche and it's very much built into our scripture. Picking up where you left off, Morgan, where the, where the plates come out of the earth and, you know, they're resurrected and breathe life into the restoration, what we saw immediately thereafter was the fire of Pentecost. Mm, and all yes. the spiritual gifts. Yes, that is a good insight. You're absolutely right. Well, guys, this has been a lot of fun. We're at an hour and a half, and I think that's probably a good length. What do you guys think? Yeah. Is there anything else you wanted to add to the conversation before we jump off? Any kind of testimony or last words? If if I could, I would just like to to leave your listeners with something to contemplate, which is kind of the purpose of, of this podcast to begin with. I think that, you know, we, we talk about this and kind of the question becomes, so what? You know, and and so I just wanted to give a quick little tutorial on how to use the insights from alchemy in our own life and in our, our spirituality and in our discipleship as Latter-day Saints. Awesome. And so I wanted to, to leave you with this alchemical dictum, which is in Latin. I dropped Latin after half a semester, so I'm going to butcher this. But uh, the acronym is vitriol, which is another alchemical phrase we use. Vitriol was the alchemical term for hydrochloric acid. And so when someone has an acidic personality, we call them vitriolic. Uh, but vitriol was an acronym for this Latin phrase, visita interiora terre rectificando invenius occultum lapidem, which translates in English to visit the interior of the earth, and by rectifying what you find there, you will find the hidden stone, mm -hmm. which is a reference to the philosopher's stone. And so the outer meaning of that has to do with the outer work of alchemy, which is, you know, go to the mine, find lead, go through these processes, rectify it, and by, by doing this process, you will eventually receive the philosopher's stone, from which you can transmute lead to gold, you can create the elixir of life and experience immortality, all of these things. That's the outer meaning. The inner meaning, I think is a great framework for repentance. I would invite everyone to take some time and to do some meditation and some contemplation where you go into your own subconscious mind, the, the interior of the earth, and the things you find, rectify them. The sins that you have suppressed, as, as was mentioned in that Carl Jung quote that I gave earlier, the, the things in your life where you are not in right relationship with those around you and with God, rectify those and then see what comes from it. 
And I believe that is the true meaning of the Philosopher's Stone. I think that, that Jesus Christ is the Philosopher's Stone. And the way that we find him is by doing that inner work and rectifying the things that we find. And we'll find that through doing that, Jesus will be revealed in our life and we'll begin to ascend into higher levels and experience him in higher ways. Amen. That reminds me of a a famous quote of Joseph Campbell, in the cave you fear to enter lies the treasure you seek. Absolutely. I think that has the same, it's the same invitation. Well, Morgan Aldis, thanks so much for joining us. The listener doesn't know that you came to us on short notice. I asked you this morning and you, you pulled off a great interview. I got to tell you, it was very enlightening for me. And I, I thank you for, for coming on and contributing. I, I think our listeners are really going to enjoy this episode. So for Latter-day Contemplation, I'm Riley Risto. And I'm Christopher Hurtado. And we hope you have a great week. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me.